This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. We have a first-time guest on here today I'm very excited about. Um, uh, She comes at the recommendation of Jonathan Adler, whose recommendations I always follow. I just wish I could remember what I said that prompted him to say, oh, you know who you should get to talk about that? Uh, <laughs> but uh, we got her regardless. Oh, and I should have asked you this before we started recording, but Nita, how do I pronounce your last name? Farahani. Farahani, okay. Pretty much how it's spelled. Okay. And I'm glad I didn't know that I came by recommendation of Jonathan. That's great. I adore Jonathan. Jonathan saved my life in prison, so I just, you know, I, I owe him. Oh, good, life. good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> So Nita Farhani is currently the Robinson O. Everett Distinguished Professor of Law and Philosophy at Duke Law School. Fancy. She's a leading scholar on the ethical, legal, and social implications of emerging technologies and, and was appointed by President Obama to the Presidential Commission for the Study of Bioethical Issues. Farhani is a co-editor-in-chief and co-founder of the Journal of Law and Biosciences and is on the Board of Advisors of Scientific American. Her new book is The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. So thank you again for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I, the first question I always ask authors is, what's your book about? Um, but I'm going to ask you that. But also, if you could also just sort of explain up front what neurotechnology is for someone who hasn't heard the phrase or isn't quite sure. Sure. So... My book is about um, both what's happening and what's coming uh, to make us far more interconnected with neurotechnology. And neurotechnology is any technology that is designed to read or write to the brain, but directly rather than indirectly, because everything reads and writes to your brain in some ways. So um, what it really gets into is both existing wearable neurotechnology. So this is headbands with sensors that are embedded in them that pick up electrical activity or um, other functional activity in the brain through things like infrared light or picks up brain activity at muscular junctions throughout the body. And then algorithms or AI that decodes what that means to make sense of it. Um, 
And what the book really dives into is the fact that major tech companies are investing in integrating brain sensors into everyday technology, earbuds, headphones, watches, um, so that just like the multifunctional devices that people use right now, like a watch, a smartwatch that picks up their heart rate, their brain activity will be picked up as well. Um, and it won't just be to track things like brain health. It will become a neural interface, a way that people will replace things like a keyboard or a mouse to interact with the rest of their technology. So it'll become a much more integral part of everyday life. And the book sets out both what the potential promise of that era is, but also the peril of giving tech companies and governments direct access to our brains and mental experiences and what the rights are that we need now, a right to cognitive liberty to safeguard against what could be a very dystopian future rather than a promising one where we're empowered by the technology. Yeah, so I, I want to get to all the legal and ethical stuff, but just sort of on the explanatory front a little bit. When you say right to the brain, the way I gather it from what I've read and I listened to you a couple of your interviews, it seems to me the one way to think about that is things that you don't consciously pick up but that go sort of skip the mind and go straight to the brain, right? What we used to call subliminal, but I guess that's sort of out of favor now. Well, so uh, there's directly writing to the brain by neural stimulation. So implanted electrodes or wearable technology that um, stimulates the brain can write to or change brain activity directly. Um, what you're describing are also ways of writing to the brain, which could happen through neurofeedback, for example, like you could visualize brain activity and then you could retrain your brain or people can write to your brain. I mean, people who are listening to this right now, their brains are being written to in a way, right? Because persuasive information, whether it's through conscious or unconscious thought processes changes your brain. Um, the more precise information that something like a marketer has about how your brain works the more effectively they might be able to target and bypass your conscious perception of something like an advertisement and be able to um, do something that, you know, I don't use the word subliminal because most of the time it's right out in the open, um, but it can, uh, it can make your much more reflexive thinking uh, active rather than critical thinking. So rather than subliminal or conscious, what most marketers really focus on is are there ways to get you to act more automatically or reflexively rather than critically and deliberately? So, you know, the, the, the algorithm for TikTok, you listen to some people and it's incredibly manipulative on some sort of unconscious, subconscious level. And then there are other people like, eh, um, where does that come down in, um, in your schema? I wrote an op-ed um, about TikTok being part of a, broader uh, thing that we should be worried about, which is cognitive warfare. Um, and the concerns that I have about TikTok aren't just about the algorithm. It's the fact that there's a state actor and, uh, you know, um, authoritarian state actor that can directly influence change and decide what goes viral and what doesn't go viral, what shows up. One of the big innovations that TikTok made relative to other social media platforms is it wasn't just your friends. It was just an algorithm that was trying to read your preferences um, and not preferences that you explicitly like went in and said, like, I like to, you know, read about or see videos about sports. But where did you spend milliseconds longer on uh, something which would suggest, you know, you had a harder time just swiping past it or 
um, what uh, do you like or what do you comment on or, you know, just everything about taking your behavioral, uh, your, your behavioral manifestations, anything that you do to interact with the technology and then developing pretty quickly a really precise profile of uh, what gets you to go down the rabbit hole and staying on the platform for a lot longer. And the problem is once you're hooked and once uh, an algorithm can figure that out, it can continue to serve up a lot of information and a lot of information that you're kind of mindlessly watching and scrolling through that can shape your preferences and desires. I wouldn't call this sort of like explicit manipulation. I'd call it shaping. Um, and I think people don't realize the extent to which technology is being designed to really shape and reshape the way people think. And TikTok was a really good example of that. They're not alone anymore, right? All of the other social media platforms realized the big innovation of the TikTok platform and started to adopt a similar um, strategy with respect to shaping of behavior. And they weren't the first to try to shape behavior either. I mean, there's plenty of examples going back to Facebook, changing people's speeds to try to um, make them uh, happy or make them sad or to try to understand or kind of shape and steer their reactions and their behaviors. But that kind of behavioral shaping um, is especially at the hands of an authoritarian government where, you know, you can be fed an echo chamber of disinformation or an echo chamber that shapes your political views or turns you against a political candidate um, can be incredibly destructive and undermine democracy and can, uh, you know, create greater polarization. But at a fundamental level, I think people just don't understand the extent to which our interactions with technology are intentionally being designed to shape and reshape our cognitive landscape. So um, I'm very sympathetic to this, but in the, in the spirit of devil's advocacy a little bit, how much of this is really just sort of, it was ever thus, it's just the techniques are getting better, right? I mean, we had television networks that could, that did granular understanding of the ratings, people AB tested, all sorts of things. Hollywood had focus groups. We knew that sex sells, right? We knew that explosions work to grab our attention. Violence is more compelling than turgid, you know, drama and subtitles. And, and so we're just, this is just part and parcel of moving from the analog age where you had to do market research to the digital age where you can actually get pinpoint information of each end user rather than sort of broad categories of them. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's always hard to, help people see that something is um, different in kind and not, in, not just in degree or when, when does something become so precise that it does become difference in kind rather than just degree. Um, for sure, right? I mean, marketing has always been designed to try to shape behavior or nudge behavior. There's all kinds of arguments uh, from Cass Sunstein onward about the permissibility of nudging, even things like you know, showing you caloric content and saying whether that changes behavior or where you put products on a shelf in order to see if somebody is more likely at eye level to pick up a product, which they are. Uh, and so that's sort of the prime placement. Um, you know, all of these things for a long time have been designed to try to persuade and shape us. And if we were to try to legally say it's impermissible to ever try to shape or persuade people, uh, there'd be no human interactions that would be permissible at all. That said, this is different in kind. And the reason it's different in kind is several fold. One is the precision, um, which is these aren't, you know, group level categorizations of advertisements. Like, you know, it used to be a Super Bowl ad would 
you know, have uh, a guy in a sports car with a bunch of scantily clad women who, uh, you know, were draped on him to try to show like, if you drink this beer, you're going to have all of this, this will be your lifestyle. And that was targeting like a generic view of, you know, what a particular um, stereotype of how people behave. Uh, but it wasn't that effective. Uh, and it was effective for a very small category of people. These algorithms are now algorithms of one. They can now precisely target a single person and they can very precisely then serve up content and create a closed loop. You have sensors that are picking up how a person reacts to something or eye tracking or, you know, tracking how you move through content. You weren't going up to your, you know, television screen and like stroking the car in the NFL uh, commercial or, you know, the, the, the halftime commercial. This is literally a closed loop where how you react changes the environment that you're interacting with and then serves up something that is precisely tailored to you to shape and change you and gets down to that specific of a level of uh, like uh, of this opponent shaping uh, technique that people are using. And it's deliberate, right? It is designed to intentionally bypass the way you consciously perceive information and to try to get you to act automatically reflexively and to have your conscious like critical thinking skills check out um, in ways that are harmful to you. Well, maybe some people might argue that alcohol is harmful harmful to you. Um, That's different than something where it's a platform designed to capture your attention, to diminish your brain state, to like have you no longer be able to focus and pay attention on other things in your life and to literally addict you to a particular, uh, you know, piece of technology, a particular platform, and then serve you up content that is ultimately not helpful or good content, but content that could even be pushed at you by an authoritarian regime that's seeking to shape and change your perspective. All of that to me is different in kind, not just degree. No, I think that's fair. Um, so, I mean, other than TikTok, which seems to be the camel's nose under the tent of, of this phenomenon, right? What are examples of this sort of technology in the here and now that exist, right? Um, I totally get three to five years, X, Y, and Z are coming. But when you talk about like brain monitoring. When you're talking about neurotechnology? Yeah. When you're talking about brain monitoring your AirPods or whatever, I I don't think my AirPods monitor my brain. I mean, but. Yours don't, but I have some that do. Um, And so the question of when is it going to be here versus when is it going to be here at scale, I think is the the real question to ask, which is the technology is already here today. Um, that is, you know, I already have and could, you know, show you uh, earbuds that have brain sensors that are inside of them, headbands that have brain sensors that are inside of them, watches and bracelets that can pick up motor neuron activity. That is the information that goes from your brain down your arm to your wrist and then decodes that information. Um, but, you know, your earbuds do not appear to be of the manufacturers that uh, are, are embedding brain sensors. And you will be aware of it when it happens um, because it's not as if it's going to be a hidden feature. It's going to be a feature that people are going to intentionally tout and also encourage you to use to interact with all the rest of your technology. Most of the major neurotech companies that have had big breakthrough, breakthroughs in this area of moving from what have been relatively uncomfortable and silly looking devices that are worn across the forehead or worn inside of baseball caps 
all of which are here today. Those technologies exist. There are already companies worldwide who are using baseball caps or hard hats that have brain sensors embedded in them to pick up fatigue levels or attention levels of employees. Moving to something that will become ubiquitous across society are brain sensors in everyday devices, just like the watch. Meta has said that they will launch their watch that has neural interface in early 2025. Um, Apple is always closed-lipped about whether or not they're going to put sensors inside of um, their AirPods, uh, but they have patents on it and they have been meeting with neurotech companies and they have a bunch of neural engineers and their new Apple ProVision integrates already brain sensing technology by reading pupillary responses and creating and shaping the environment that a person is interacting with in order to make inferences about brains and cognitive states. Microsoft has huge investments in the space and has partnerships with a company that develops an AR headset um, that integrates brain sensors and are expected to launch within the next year or two. Um, Snap bought a company out of uh, Paris, that's an EEG-based company, and they promised to launch their AR headset together with integrated neural interface um, through what was called a, a NextMind. It was an EEG, that is electroencephalography reading device. So I think what we're looking at for wide-scale dissemination of this technology is about two years um, before you know multifunctional devices will become the norm. And I think when it first launches, it'll be simple neural interface. It won't be full typing with your mind. Um, but it'll be navigating through, you know, uh, an augmented reality or virtual reality space by being able to think about doing so, so that it'll be a more seamless interaction with those environments. I can think of all sorts of reasons why you'd want some of this stuff for gaming, right? You mm-hmm. want some of this. Yeah, stuff. it's already. I mean, there's already gaming. Yeah. Um, you know, companies that have launched it and it'll become part of gaming. Uh, so yes. And I get it if you've had a stroke or you have some other medical condition that there's a real justification for it. What is like the what is their pitch going to be to me? What am I getting out of them being able to read my head? Can I ask how old you are? I am fifty three years old. Fifty four. Sorry. So times a flat circle. Um, I I was watching this show with my daughter last night, and I was totally creeped out. They um, it was this show that pitted the parents against the kids, and it was trying to show that there are some things that kids are better at, and some things that parents are better at, and they played musical shares with the um, parents and the way that the, the um, music would stop is they did it at increasingly higher frequencies. When they got to 15,000 and 20,000 hertz, the parents were basically all out because they couldn't hear those higher frequencies. Whereas the kids could hear the higher frequencies because they haven't lost, um, you know, the, uh, the little hairs in their ears that enabled them to detect those higher frequencies. Okay. So why am I telling you that story? Um, aside from that, I just love to bring my kids into conversation um, is because you know, some of the things that I think are going to appeal to people like you and me um, will be the ability to track brain health and, um, you know, ability to track everything from cognitive decline to the earliest stages of Alzheimer's and dementia. I'm a chronic migrainer, the ability to track and potentially proactively treat it. Um, some things like glioblastoma, which is a deadly form of brain cancer, largely because by the time it's detected, it's already spread and inoperable. There are tiny changes in electrical activity in the brain that can be potentially picked up from these consumer-based neurotechnology devices. You may find that like your memory or your attention starts to wane a little, and there are brain training techniques that you can do much more effectively with brain sensors. Um, so I think 
brain health and wellness uh, in the same way that like heart health, like a lot of uh, people who've decided to start using heart rate sensors in their watches do so because they're getting older and they think that it's good to be able to detect arrhythmias and pick up a heart attack before it occurs or, you know, any kinds of aberrations in their heart rate. Like what is more fundamental to you than your brain and the ability to actually track meaningful metrics and see where they're changing, especially if they're actionable, I think will be really appealing to people. You know, the, the brain has been this black box. And for me, a really terrifying future is a future of dementia or a future of, you know, losing brain health and wellness or just using losing the sharpness of my brain. And so being able to see it, do something about it, address it, and and have brain fitness in the same way that you have the rest of your physical fitness. Uh, I think that's I think that's how most of them will start uh, and, and why it'll become a mass market appeal. And, and how will they sell it to my daughter? Your daughter will be able to do neural interface. She can she can type with her mind. She can swipe by thinking about it. She can update her social media status um, just by seamlessly thinking about doing so. She can type her college essay uh, by thinking about it and interact with the rest of her technology in a much more natural way. But that doesn't exist yet, right? I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just... Neural interface is what... I mean, that's what Meta is investing in. Like if you go and watch any of... And so, yes, it exists. It's not like fully functional yet for it to launch, but already it exists to enable things like typing on virtual keyboards, swiping just by thinking about doing so. Um, neural interface as a way to be able to navigate through virtual reality, like your daughter, my daughters, I think that they will have a world that they'll deal with much more immersive technology like AR and VR. And a lot of those are being built from the ground up with neural interface technology. So it's not like, You'll have the option of using the joystick or the neural interface. You'll have brain sensors that will be integrated into those technologies because that will be the more natural way to interact with those technologies. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All right, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. The most important holiday of the year is coming up, Father's Day. It's the same dilemma people have every year. What do you get the man who already has everything? Put down the slippers and step away from the ties and get your dad something unexpected, an Aura digital frame. Longtime listeners know that I'm actually really happy to recommend Aura frames. I've never had a problem with them. I have two. I've given them as gifts. I gave one to my daughter. They're incredibly versatile. They're easy to use. You can update them. It's just like this really simple app on your phone. Customize the settings for how long the pictures stay. You can beam new photos from anywhere to the frame. Aura frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital frame that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's really easy to upload and share photos using the app. And if you're giving an Aura frame as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Father's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting Aura Frames to get $30 off on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames. Dot com. This deal ends June 18th, so don't wait. Use code REMNANT 
This is the important part for our inter-office rivalries. Use promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So I think I, I heard you talk about the answer to this, but I think it's an important question to get the answer for my listeners. These devices, some of which are sort of rudimentary, but going to get better quickly, like technology usually does. Who owns the data about your brain? Um, and what are they doing with that data? Well, I mean, so it was Shoshana Zuboff, who I thought well characterized in her book, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, that, you know, we are the product of all of these platforms. And so far, that has been the trend with all of the neural devices, too, which is um, brain data is commodified just in the same way that the rest of the data that is being collected about us is. Problem is that data, I think, uh, in many ways will be more sensitive and a greater risk than other kinds of data. And of course, it won't be collected in isolation. It's the aggregation of like that last piece of information, the like parts of yourself that you hold back that completes the puzzle when there's any question about how you're thinking or feeling about something and you can see a person's brain-based reaction to it. Um, so there are some neurotech companies who are actively looking at trying to develop different models of this. Like, are there ways to keep brain data on device to overwrite data and just have the inferences, like if you're having a fatigue management system or fatigue monitoring system, like a company like SmartCap uses, where they uh, sell a product to companies to be able to track fatigue levels in long haul truckers or um, miners or pilots, uh, the, the raw brain data is collected on device and is overwritten on device. The only information that goes from what's collected to the brain, to the employee and to the employer is the inferences about the fatigue levels of the employee. And the thing about brain data is that it's not, it, it's not um, singular. It's like, it's like high fidelity information. So I, the best way I've come up with to describe this is, you know, you might want to, uh, you're, you're writing a full diary out, you keep a journal every day, you hand a friend a single page from that diary and you say, you know, I wanted to share this piece of information with you. But in order to do so, you don't tear the page out, you hand them the entire diary. Um, and, you know, either they read just that page, or they have the entire book in front of them that they can like, go back to time and again, they make a photocopy of it, they can, you know, return to it time and again, and, and mine it for other information full spectrum brain data at, at any given time, or if it's collected over a long period of time, like you're wearing it throughout the workday, has the potential to be probed for a lot of other things, like what you were thinking or feeling or visualizing throughout the day, your brain activity level, your attention levels, your fatigue levels, your reaction to information that was put up in, on a computer screen in front of you or, you know, primed in the environment around you. And if you have that full raw brainwave data, even if there's only one inference that you're trying to draw from it, all of the rest of that information could be queried as well. And so the nature and the structure of the data makes it particularly problematic and the fact that it is so closely tied and associated with what you're thinking and feeling in life. So, yeah, I mean, I like the diary metaphor. I was also thinking it's like, when I put in for a receipt, whatever reimbursement, I put in just the evidence of that one transaction. I don't hand mm -hmm. over the entire monthly statement for my credit card, <laughs> you know, which has yeah. stuff I don't want someone knowing about. Um, yeah. All those dog toys. But um, 
Um, <laughs> just to be clear, I mean, I, I, I get the, when you're cross-referencing against what you know someone was looking at and when they were looking at it, you can make all these inferences and stuff. But we don't have the technology yet just to look at some brain scans and say, oh, he was reading Moby Dick, right? Or, oh, he was thinking about lunch or he was watching, you know. So, yes, yes, in a way we do. But let me let me qualify that. Um, so generative AI, as everybody understands, has led to huge leaps and bounds of advancement of, of uh, everything in life. And that includes decoding things like Brain data, brain data. So there was a study that was done recently, published out of UT Austin, where they used GPT-1, so the first generation of you know uh, the GPT um, technology to encode and decode what what is uh, much more cumbersome data to collect: functional magnetic resonance imaging. So this is a person goes into a giant scanner, um, and what has traditionally been a very slow kind of brain activity to measure, you can peer deeply into the brain, but it's uh, measuring blood flow throughout the brain uh, wasn't considered to be like information that could reliably be used to decode like a person was reading Moby Dick or hearing Moby Dick or thinking about Moby Dick. But they trained a classifier on the subjects in the machine, listening to stories, imagining stories, and then were able to come up with a unique classifier per participant. And then a person could just imagine a story and you could look at that fMRI data and you can say, aha, this is the story that they were imagining and get very close to the semantic meaning of what they were imagining. It wasn't word for word, but it was the meaning itself. That's about as close to mind reading as you can get. What you couldn't do is pick up that person's fMRI scans or fMRI data if you didn't have the classifier, like the, the you know decoder ring to be able to say, this is what it means. But if you have the decoder ring, then you could, and each person's decoder ring is going to be unique to them, then you could decode what their brain activity meant, including they were listening and thinking about Moby Dick, or here's the visual imagery, or they were thinking about a draft, and here's the draft that they were thinking about at that time. Um, all of that with the classifier could be decoded. And so you might think, well, okay, I'm never going to train a classifier on my own brain. But go back to neural interface, where you're using it to interface with all the rest of your technology, you have to calibrate each and every device to you. And so who owns the classifier? Do you keep it encrypted on your device? Is it something that the, you know, tech company or the, you know, manufacturer, or if the manufacturer is out of China, the state government has access to the classifier, and they can use that to decode all the rest of your information? These are all questions that are up for grabs right now, right? Like, there's no right you have right now to the classifier. And there are other inferences that can be made without the classifier. Like, you know, uh, yes, no, um, your emotional reaction. It's much more precise if it's trained on your specific classifier. But there are some general similarities between how we react. Like what stress looks like for you and what stress looks like for me is going to be pretty similar between the two of us. So there's some brain states that can be decoded without having the classifier you get much more precise when you have the classifier trained on each individual. That's not scary at all. Um, so I think I now remember why Jonathan Adler said to get you on the podcast was... Um, to freak you out a little. Well, no, I mean, I'm sure he's glad about that too. <laughs> but um, no, I, I've, been, I've been arguing for a long time that um, we should stop talking about sort of data stuff purely as privacy and also talk about it as property rights. Right. And yeah. that, and I, and I'm not saying it's one or the other, but like, yeah, 
Well, and I'm talking about it as a general liberty interest, right? right? right. And so it's like, I think about it not as privacy, but uh, even though I think that's one component to it, but I think about it as a basic, like we need to update our concept of liberty for the digital age. It's just changed and it's outdated. Yeah. And like, like it's one thing when my phone or Google or Android or whatever knows that I'm at a Starbucks, but does it really need to know I'm at church or synagogue or whatever? And like how long I'm there and that kind of thing. Right. And so like figuring out how to, I mean, I'm, I'm always inclined to say, if you can figure out a way to align market incentives with good things, it's better than working against market incentives. So that's the challenge though, right? Which is like, how do you, it's hard. Yeah. I mean, this is, I'd say that's the thing that I'm struggling with the most right now as I work on this concept of cognitive liberty is how do you align market incentives with corporations respecting cognitive liberty? Because right now, like, let's just set neurotech aside for a moment and look at the broader argument about cognitive liberty. Most social media companies um, or even just media companies are not incentivized to do anything other than to addict you and to capture your attention because uh, their primary way that they make money is through advertisement and advertisement is more effective if they've captured your attention. Um, And so how do you break that mold so that uh, like human flourishing uh, is aligned with corporate incentives. I don't have a good answer to that right now. Nor do I, but like it's more your job than mine to have a good answer. So good luck. Um, <laughs> Thanks. <Okay. yeah. laughs> I mean, I'm starting with, I decided to start with what I know as a lawyer, which is to start with a liability regime, right? Which is like there are carrots and there are sticks. And if you start with a human right to cognitive liberty, which leads to an updating of freedom of thought and into privacy and self-determination such that the, you know, basic rights framework, then if implemented through national legislation is such that, you know, you you don't have basic right to collect brain data and to commodify it and sell it, but that that right rests with individuals, um, then, you know, you at least start with the liability, but I think you need both. I think you need not just the sticks, you need the carrots so that you actually have um, values alignment between emerging technology and human flourishing. Yeah. I mean, it, it, there's a weird commons problem, right? And that what you want to do is assert the most aggressive property right to your own brain possible. Yes. But we also want to figure out a model where you could share that data so right. that we could all. Yeah. Right. I mean, but like, you know, an aggressive property right doesn't mean you can't rent out your land, right? It just means there are clear rules about for what purposes and for how long and, and all the rest. And that's, it's problematic. Okay, so um, lawyer person, it sounds like you're saying that if we don't have it now, we are on the cusp of of having a much better lie detector than existing polygraphs. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a lot worse than a lie detector. But yeah, I mean, we we have we have a general thought detector um, and thought interference, not just thought detector. That if we don't do something about yeah. And, and lies are hard. So lies are not the best example. And I just, I mean, I just say that for a moment, which is lies are complicated and hard because a lie is a complex psychological phenomena. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very difficult to model what is a real world lie versus what's a laboratory based lie with low stakes. So the reason I say thought detector is because it'll be easier. And what's already being used, for example, is recognition of a crime scene detail and, you know, there are law enforcement agencies using um, brain-based 
uh, interrogation techniques to try to figure out if somebody recognizes a salient crime scene detail. It's harder to tell if they're telling the truth or lying, but it's easier to probe their brain for information. I see. So like if you have a picture of the crime scene that only the murderer would recognize and their pupils do X and their frontal lobe does Y, you say, aha, you recognized it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's not, I mean, they're not looking at pupils. They're looking at a brain based signal. So they're looking at um, something that's called a P300 signal, which is uh, a signal that is before you are consciously like processing an image before you, your automatic recognition detection in your brain kind of signals um, this difference in the amplitude of this wave called the P300 wave. And so that evoked potential is what they're measuring rather than looking at pupillary response. And, and the argument is that that's far more accurate than the kind of tells that you have, whether it's, you know, heart rate or pupillary response or sweat or things like that. So basically it tells, it can tell even before you're conscious of it, that you're getting it from a file in your brain that where you store real memories. Okay. Does this change fourth amendment stuff or is it just and fifth amendment stuff? I mean, like, um, yeah, I mean, so, you know, that's where I started with this like a decade ago is I did, I did an article called searching secrets, which looked at whether brain baseline detection implicates fourth amendment, uh, you know, right to rights against unreasonable search and seizure. And likewise, I looked at fifth amendment as to whether or not the right against self-incrimination would protect people. And there's this gray area because, you know, Right now, Fourth Amendment um, and Fifth Amendment, I mean, Fourth Amendment, of course, would only protect you as to whether or not a warrant is required, right? But besides that, um, there's this physical versus uh, like spoken word or, you know, information that you've created versus information that you're being compelled to create in response to interrogations. So you can be required to provide a blood sample, you know, to figure out if you are drunk or a handwriting exemplar or, you know, footprint or things like that. Um, you know, you have to show a tattoo that's on your body if it was detected in the video. So is blood flowing through your brain um, more like spoken and compelled testimony? And what if it is something that's not created in response to inquiries, but passively collected? And what if it's collected from a third party, right? So you're, you've got your earbuds in, they're collecting all of your brain data um, and the government subpoenas the brain data from a third party rather than directly from you. Does that implicate, you know, Fourth Amendment or Fifth Amendment? So the answer is, I don't think Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment, I think there are big, huge gaps in Fourth Amendment and Fifth Amendment to protect people against this. Who knows at the end of the day, whether those gaps would be closed by, you know, clever interpretation of the constitution. Um, I wouldn't rest my uh, bets there. I mean, it feels a little bit like there have been a couple cases where the cops just used like 23andMe or Ancestry.com right. to figure stuff out. Right. And the DNA. Or even like Apple, you know, um, I guess Apple hasn't handed over, but, but, you know, trying to get Fitbit data, for example, um, and other data that have been used in criminal cases. I'm very torn about this because I used to have these great arguments with people about uh, Minority Report. And like, I'm a big fan of the rule of law. I, I, I like classical liberalism greatly, but like the criminal justice system was created to make sure that we didn't railroad innocent people. It wasn't created to make sure that it was really difficult to convict guilty people. So, I mean, that's, that's one of the things I take up in, in incriminating thoughts is, 
what is the purpose of the privilege against self-incrimination? And it's to not put people in a cruel trilemma. What if they're not put into that cruel trilemma by, you know, the gathering of the data? And what if there is a world in which it's incredibly highly accurate and it gets the right person without actually putting a person in a position of creating the data or being subject to any kind of painful interrogation or anything like that? Um, this is why self-incrimination, I, I don't think, is going to get people a right against, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I think self-incrimination doesn't get people a right against uh, the use of brain data against them, at least in certain contexts and in certain ways. And that's why I think the Fourth Amendment isn't going to necessarily protect people. And maybe, to your point, maybe maybe it shouldn't, right? Um, it, it depends on how accurate you think it is and how it's obtained and what it means for the general relationship between the state and the individual and the extent to which people feel secure in their everyday lives. Yeah, I mean, I, I still remain skeptical about the the hundred percent accuracy thing, and and my well, I don't. It's not a hundred percent accurate, right? I mean, so, so I I was positing a hypothetical world in which it was. Right. But yeah, that's my point. Is that I mean, the way I'll often put it is, if you had a direct phone line to God and you could ask him who committed the crime, and there's no doubt that God's going to tell you the the accurate truth, you don't need to waste time with a trial. <laughs> but absent divine 100% certainty, then you get into more complicated stuff. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. All right, so I can't remember the phrase you use. Is it, is it uh, dream embedding? Dream incubation. Dream incubation. Because I, I think there are a handful of listeners in Peoria who aren't freaked out yet. So um, can you sort of <laughs> should, should I go that? ahead and freak them out too? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dream incubation. I just, I was, I was kind of blown away by that. So there are dream researchers who um, have, you know, sought to figure out both, can you decode what a person is dreaming? Can you shape and change what a person is dreaming? And can doing so be therapeutic, right? Can it help a person? Um, you know, overcome trauma or, you know, overcome addiction or other kinds of problems. And then marketers were like, oh, that looks like really interesting research. Maybe we can use that to market products and to shape people to, you know, ends and goals that are more commercial uh, rather than for, you know, helping them to overcome their addiction or their emotional trauma or things like that. So um, what the idea of it is, is that when people... Um, fall asleep, and when they're you know just waking up or just falling asleep, there there's a period of time in which blood flow is not like fully restored across the brain, um, and that that's a very suggestible state. So think about it as like your cognitive defenses are down, um, and you're in a very suggestible state, and so that's the moment at which marketers were looking at could they play something like a soundscape 
um, where uh, you would start to have positive associations with their brand. And I think it was Coors that wanted to see if it was possible to get people to think of Coors associated with mountains and streams. And so could they play a soundscape while a person was sleeping and have them dream about like cores and mountains and streams so that they would think of cores and think like it's so refreshing and crisp and, you know, great. Um, and so they, you know, trialed this on some volunteers and these were will- willing volunteers. It wasn't done just kind of creepily while people were asleep um, and found that they could effectively incubate those kinds of associations during that successful state. And of course, my mind goes to like, what's the worst way in which this can happen? So there are all these companies that are selling, you know, earbuds and, um, the ability to to track your sleep so that people can much more accurately track sleep and get information about sleep and sleep health. Um, and, you know, so you've got your earbuds that are tracking your sleep and picks up the moments at which you are the most suggestible, your, you know, um, listening device in your bedroom from Google or Amazon, you know, turns on at that exact moment and plays an advertisement because they've sold access to your brain data. Um, and, you know, without even consenting into that kind of advertisements, your dreamscapes are uh, shaped and changed during the most suggestible state when your cognitive defenses are down. And again, there's nothing that protects people against that right now, right? Other than deciding not to have the listening device in their bedroom and not to wear the earbuds. But once they opt into that world, once they decide that like it's another fitness tracker that they're going to integrate into their everyday life, I think we have to recognize it's our brains and our cognitive landscape that's at risk. And so unless we actually have some rights and regulations with respect to how that information, who has access to it, how it's used, what's permissible to do or not do, um, we're in for, I think, uh, a, a dystopian future. Did I get your last listeners who weren't freaked out? Is that, is that enough? <laughs> uh, they'll let me know. Um, All right. but, so, but I mean, just to take the edge off the freak out a little bit, I mean, like the idea of playing positive reinforcement messages, you know, in your sleep, people were trying to get people to quit cigarettes and all that kind of stuff going, you know, way back with that kind of thing. I mean, is it in fact, I mean, how, how, how is that different? I mean, like, the 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 sort of the self hypnosis thing was you know where you play self help tubs. Well, I mean, self hypnosis is voluntary, right? That the scenario that I just painted for you is. Oh no, I, I agree. My, my point is, is does it does, does does it work before we get to? Like, oh, you know. Yeah, I mean, so uh, yes, it seems to work. The question about how how well does it work? I don't know, and and I don't know because I don't know all of the different contexts in which it's been tried. Um, and I don't know if there's some things that it's really effective at and some things that it's not effective at. That is, you know, are there some behaviors that you can't really shape or change or can you really shape or change somebody that, in a way that, like there's a lot of marketing research that shows it's very hard through marketing to get people to do things that are inconsistent with their goals. Um, and I think hypnosis has found uh, over time something similar where like even if you hypnotize somebody... You, you can't get them to act like fundamentally at odds with something that they have as goal-directed behavior. So could you through dream research do that? Probably not is my guess, but could you get somebody to have positive associations where they don't have any between a beer and a, uh, you know, and how they think about it? Could you create positive associations um, where 
there is no goal-directed behavior that's at odds with it. Um, I, I think so. I mean, there's there's a whole lot of things that you don't have explicit, you know, kind of contrary goals to. And if the point is to market or advertise, or even more creepily, you know, if it's um, to shape or change your views about political candidates or to try to interfere with democracies, you know, you could imagine that people don't have explicit goals in that way and that their minds can be changed through this kind of dream incubation. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy to think of horrible dystopian things, but like advertisers have been trying to do a lot of these things to our brains for a very long time. And yeah, but they didn't have precise access to them. Yeah, no, I'm I'm, I'm not saying don't be worried about it. I'm just saying that like, I'm still a little skeptical about how some of it is going to work. I mean, look, maybe nobody ever crosses that line, right? Maybe nobody ever thinks like, oh, wouldn't it be great to like creepily do that? Just because I'm thinking about every worst case scenario of this doesn't mean that every one of these dystopian possibilities will come true. Some of them already are coming true, not in the dream area that I'm aware of, but in other examples that I get throughout the book, you know, I imagine a dystopian use of it in the workplace, or I imagine a dystopian use of it by governments, and they're doing it already, just not at massive scale across society. So I'd say, you know, these are not just hypothetical risks. They're actual risks that are being realized in today's world. And as the technology becomes more pervasive, um, you can be sure that you're going to see a much greater scale of those kinds of harms being realized across society. Will every dystopian possibility that I've thrown out be realized? I hope not. Um, And I hope that we'll act before then to actually secure to people a right to cognitive liberty so that, you know, there's at least some rights and remedies and some global norms and potential enforcement possibilities against that developing. Yeah. I mean, there's absolutely no reason it seems to me to think that China wouldn't use this technology on its own people. It already is. The moment it crossed the line of efficacy in any way, right? Because with the social credit store stuff, they're already doing a lot of that kind of thing. You know, just if they get better at it, why would they stop? Right. Mm-hmm. I do think, and, and, and then we'll get to the law part of it, but like, it's, it's funny I, because I've, been a journalist for 30 years and I used to work for journalists and stuff. I used to get a lot of mail from, from people who had serious mental health problems. And it was amazing how many of them shared this particular sort of, I don't know if the correct term is bipolar or whatever, or schizophrenic. I know it's not schizophrenic, but where people from different parts of the country were convinced that the CIA was talking to them through their fillings. And, um, there's a, I, I get a few of these messages every day. Yeah, and, I'm, I'm familiar with them. And yeah. And the thing is, is that part of the problem is, is that it's a, it's a mimetic thing that if you're already hearing voices and then someone suggests to you, the explanation is X radio waves from the CIA, whatever aliens, it gets sort of weirdly imprinted in your head. And that becomes the paradigm that you're thinking in for people who have those sorts of issues. This is going to be nightmarish i would think yeah i mean when i say i hear from people a few times a day i hear from people a few times a day um and you know like it's the kinds of technology that most of the people who write to me describe as far as i'm aware does not yet exist um the technology just isn't as far along as a lot of them you know believe it is but once it is, I mean, and I don't think it'll ever get to the point where some of the people who contact me, you know, believe it is. But once, once there is greater precision of both being able to read and write to the brain, it will be hard to distinguish between, um, 
you know, delusional disorders and bipolar and schizophrenia or hallucinations and, you know, some of the types of things that might be possible might actually be happening. And, you know, that I guess that's one of the, that's scary in a few ways, including, you know, how will we detect and know when it's happening? How, like how many of those earlier cases will get dismissed as delusional or mental health cases? Um, and then how much of this technology and the development of the technology will really feed into mass psychogenic, you know, illnesses or beliefs about persecution that don't actually exist. Um, so, you know, for sure, it, it's, there's a lot of overlap um, in, in the nature of the claims versus some of the kinds of things that I'm describing uh, about technological possibilities in the future. Yeah. I mean, just being able to persuade people that it's not happening is going to, it's going to be harder and harder, much, I mean, like Havana syndrome, you know, as that was being described, led to a whole bunch of people who were not diplomats, who were not in, you know, a place that were likely to even have been within the line of fire if such a fire existed um, to argue that they were being persecuted, you know, that they were being subject to electromagnetic radiation or et cetera, et cetera. So. I mean, I, I don't mean to make light of it because I, I do think it's a really serious thing, but like it's the weird irony is that it may actually make sense to wear tinfoil hats, right? <laughs> that was the whole thing yeah. is blocking out the radio waves. And like, now you're telling me like, you know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I do think that I do think neurosecurity will become a thing of the future. Like what, what will that actually look like as, um, as technologies or weaponry or other kinds of things are developed, you know, certainly people will be looking into and developing and trying to figure out what are real and effective countermeasures. Yeah. I mean, like uh, the RFID blocking, yeah. you know, wallets and stuff are a huge thing already. You're like, people are gonna make them into hats, right? You know? Um, yeah. All right. So uh, let's just cut to the chase. You've been made neurotechnologies are in the, the next presidential administration. And what are the things that are doable now that you, you would, that you think are the low hanging fruit that you could get people to buy into? And then what are the things that you think are going to be necessary down the road? So, I mean, I think low hanging fruit is to update existing interpretations of human rights to freedom of thought, to include a right against interception manipulation and punishment of thoughts, privacy as an international human right to include a right to mental privacy explicitly, and self-determination, which underlies most existing rights to be recognized. Now, how does that help people in individual countries? And how does it help when human rights are violated all the time or not implemented all the time? Um, then the question becomes, could we at the very least recognize a right to mental privacy within the United States? That to me seems like an easy one that you could get a lot of people to agree on. Maybe we don't have agreement across the board on freedom of thought. If you look at the fights that are happening on everything from book bans to, um, you know, censorship of particular speakers, I don't think that we're going to find broad political agreement on freedom of thought. But I do think we could find broad political agreement on mental privacy. Even if you can't have explicit privacy in every other context, right? Like, it seems like there's a hard fight on other contexts of privacy. Mental privacy seems to me seems like one that would be pretty easy to recognize and implement. And then it's just the contours of it. Mental privacy is a relative, right? There may be some instances in which we think it's okay. Um, you know, but, but that to me is the lowest and easiest hanging fruit. And then what that means in different contexts, of course, is going to have to be spelled out. What does that mean in the employment context, right? And um, so if, 
there is a bona fide legal justification for being able to monitor for fatigue levels because you're a commercial driver. Like, do you really have a stronger right to mental privacy than the privacy, than the interest of individuals against you barreling down the road while asleep, you know, while driving a bus? Probably not, right? And so we'll have to figure out what that means in different contexts. Um, but, you know, then the only thing that an employer should have access to is your fatigue levels, not the full spectrum of all of the rest of your data, right? Not your entire financial statement, not your entire diary, just the one sliver piece of information that's relevant. So to me, that's like, ideally, we get the human rights because I think that there is a norm and the potential for enforcement. Um, and then I think nationally in the US, we push for mental privacy as a right and then work on implementing that. And then further down the road, I think a right to cognitive liberty is a broad update to the concept of liberty. We need to align incentives, commercial incentives, so that it is the kind of understanding of what it means to flourish in the digital age, figure out a way to both create incentives, as well as to create liability regimes that align those things together. We need to embed it into research design. We need to create standards across industries so that people are actually trying to maximize cognitive liberty, not trying to undermine it. We should be investing in products to enable people to cultivate it in their own lives so that they can, you know, develop the critical thinking, the mental agility that they need, the relational intelligence that they need to be able to navigate an increasingly interconnected and interdependent world. What is the difference for the layman um, between mental privacy and cognitive liberty? Just like in just terminological terms. So the difference between mental privacy and cognitive liberty is cognitive liberty is a broader right. It's both a right to access and change information about our brains, as well as a right from um, interference with mental privacy and with freedom of thought. Mental privacy really protects, I think, interception of, uh, you know, brain data, interception of brain activity and mental experiences. But it doesn't protect you, for example, from manipulation or shaping. It doesn't protect you from... Um, and give you rights to be able to access brain data or be able to access information about your own brain or to change it, like if you want to enhance it or if you want to diminish it, all of which I think should be within the right to cognitive liberty. So I see it as both a right to your own brain and to be able to change it if you choose to do so and a right from other people interfering with um, what's happening in your brain uh, in terms of the kind of brain data and brain activity, but also for punishment, manipulation, and interception of your thoughts through a broader concept of freedom of thought. All right. <laughs> Nita Fahani, thank you very much for doing this. I appreciate it. We may call you back at some point if the uh, if our cognitive overlords will let us and I uh, really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thanks for your interest and thanks for having me today. Okay. Um, Professor Farhani has left the uh, studio and uh, I know that that episode is going to bum some people out. And if if you uh, if you thought that was sort of creepy and depressing, uh, read her book, which is really interesting and really creepy and depressing. <laughs> I mean, I don't mean I don't mean it in a sort of bad book kind of way. I just mean like this stuff is we are much further along in this stuff than um, you might have thought. Certainly than I thought before I started prepping for the show, and um, I'm glad. Look, she's totally honest about how not all these dystopian things are necessarily going to happen. But I am glad that someone is thinking about all the dystopian things that could happen. I'm still more skeptical, as I tried to say a few times, about like the, the real efficacy of the mind-reading stuff. Doesn't mean we're not going to get there. Uh, just, you know, 
there's a certain kind of scientism involved in a lot of these kinds of things. Like one of the reasons why the polygraph became so popular is because, Ooh, it has charts and dials and it looks like it's really accurate when in reality it's, it's kind of not necessarily measuring the things that people think it's measuring. I'd certainly take her at her word that this is much more granular and much more uh, effective and is going to get better. Um, but you know, there's a long history of people thinking that the new scientific fad is going to conquer all and be super effective. And it turns out that we figure out how to sort of adjust and put it in its place. I mean, people thought, you know, electricity, the transistor, uh, smell a vision or aroma vision, um, all sorts of things did not necessarily become, you know, like, you know, remember Iron Man, you know, was all about the incredible power of the transistor. And like we've had transistors now for 50 years or longer, you know, whatever I'm talking about. Iron Man's only 50 years. We've had transistors for longer than that, but it's not necessarily the magic, but this time, you know, it's a little, it's a little daunting. And, uh, and I'm trying not to, I'm trying to talk myself out of being bummed out about this kind of stuff. Cause I don't like the idea of my daughter growing up in a world where she's a crew member in the spaceship on Wally. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening. Thanks again to, um, the professor and I'm just, for some reason I'm just so intimidated by her name for honey. And, um, and thanks for listening. And I will see you next time. No, you all, this is a podcast. <laughs>